Hey friends, thanks for tuning into today's episode, live from sunny Brisbane. All right, so today's guest is Seb Bunny. He is an author, co-author of Beers for Bitcoin. He's got a new book coming out, which we discuss. He's also the co-founder of Looking Glass Education, a free online platform that helps distill complex topics in the world of Bitcoin and macro down to its most basic fundamentals so that ordinary people can understand. And I have to say, I really enjoyed this conversation. Seb is almost like a friend I'd never met before. We have so many things in common. Our journey into Bitcoin was really similar. Class of 2020 came from value investing, background in real estate. We didn't even get into the world of snowboarding, but outdoors people. And it was a really good chat overall. We got into Bitcoin adoption, maximalism, obviously into a little bit of crypto and even jumped into some politics because given the fact that he lives under the rulership of dear Justin Blackface Trudeau, I thought we just have to go there. So it was a fun conversation with a few controversial takes here and there, but overall, I think you'll really enjoy it. And then lastly, if you find what I'm doing somewhat valuable and you'd like to support the show, there are three main ways you can do it. The first is to hook a brother up with a five-star review. That would be absolutely smashing. The second thing you can do is stream sats. Oh yeah, beautiful, beautiful sats via the Fountain app. The Mere Mortals podcast, Chancellor on the Brink, and dare I say a fellow by the name of Wang Sponge have been doing it and I get a real kick out of it. So if you want to support me via sats, that is dreamy. And then lastly, and this is probably the most important thing. If you could share it amongst friends and family, specifically no-coiners, pre-coiners, people are dipping their toes in, and people who want to understand the difference between Bitcoin and crypto, that's my mission, that's my goal. I want to talk to those people. And if you could share my message with them, I'd be so appreciative. Otherwise, you're probably sick of hearing me talk. Let's get on the show. Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There is no second best crypto asset. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. I'm your host, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it completely different to all other cryptocurrencies. If you're interested in Bitcoin and you'd like to distill crypto fact from fiction, you've come to the right place. All right, I've got Mr. Seb Bunny with me in the house. Very pleased to welcome you to the Why Bitcoin Show. Thanks for joining me. Oh man, Dale, it's honestly such a pleasure. I've listened to your work and uh, I think it's phenomenal. And so I'm excited to chat. Ditto. And I've read your work and I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of that. But, um, you know, I, I I find it like sometimes a bit confusing at the outset of every podcast. Do we go into the old intro or not? Because for some people, they're like, yeah, yeah, I know this person. This is like the worst part of the pod. But maybe you can give us the TLDR. And if somebody wants to dig a little bit deeper into kind of your background, then we can get into that. Um, but yeah, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about your background, how you describe yourself, Seb. For sure. And going back to actually that question that you just asked, do you go into the background? I think it's it's unique to the individual. I think if people are just going to be talking solely about macroeconomics, finance and whatnot, it's not necessarily relevant. But I find for me personally, having a little bit of an understanding and being able to express how I fell down this rabbit hole will make sense as to probably some of the conversations we're going to have. And so long story short, I, I was a backcountry mountain bike instructor for a long, long time. Absolutely loved it. And my whole 
one of the reasons why I loved it is I love trying to distill down complex biomechanical movements into their simplest form and try and express them to people that may be unfamiliar with the topics. And what I found myself now doing in Bitcoin is the same thing. I'm trying to express these complex macroeconomic topics and distilling them down for the layman because there's not enough content out there that speaks to the layman. And I absolutely love it. And so when I look at my background and how I kind of found myself into, say, Bitcoin, I think that everyone has their own unique experience. And my experience is looking at it from the lens of an instructor, from like a coach. And then my other passions alongside that are psychology and um, trauma and and whatnot. And so I look at Bitcoin differently than most. And but that's what I think. That's why I think Bitcoin is amazing, because we've all got our own unique perspective. 120 percent. Well, I had to add the extra 20 percent because, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Everyone brings something different to the Bitcoin table. And, you know, last week I had a chat with a mate of mine, um, Swala, and he's a meme lord. And, you know, I would have never imagined that was there was an actual role for memesters in the space. But they play a vital role as well as educators and the macro people and the tech people and the, you know, the people doing all sorts of other things. So absolutely kind of echo sentiment there. So I've heard your story a little bit about how you sort of, I guess, progressed from being a value investor to ultimately finding Bitcoin. And this was like music to my ears because I too went down that journey. I didn't do what you did uh, in the sense that I was trading or picking individual stocks or trying to sort of see, well, how is this stuff valued? And is this a good opportunity to buy? It was more just about buying ETFs and that kind of stuff. But um you know, in preparation for this, I actually went and thought, okay, let me have a look at the S&P 500's PE for the last sort of 100 years. And it's quite wild to see for like significant periods of time, it was in the sort of high single digits, sort of lower single, uh, lower double digits. And we've seen now, I guess, I'm just noticing a trend where call it since around 2000, we've just seen this gradual increase where it's been fluctuating and to like around the 20 mark. And today we're sitting at around 24. And you look at that historically and you go, this doesn't necessarily indicate that there's much value to be had. So talk to us a little bit about that journey that you went through. Cause I think it's really interesting for people who, I guess, who went down the path of investing in stocks and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. So I would actually say it actually started with real estate. So my late, so I was a mountain bike instructor, absolutely loved it. But I started to realize when I first started teaching that my idols that I grew up with, these individuals that I saw in the movies and one day you aspire to meet, suddenly I started working with and I started to realize these people that are at the top of their game, that are like world renowned, they had nothing to their name. They had credit card debt. They were struggling to get by. And it made me question. I was like, how am I going to be able to be successful given that I don't have this world fame I'm not in the movies I'm just some average man of my constructor and so I realized that in order to be able to live a life of somewhat of my choosing I had to be able to generate passive income and so this is where I started to look into where I started to read kind of every investing book under the sun and I kind of fell into real estate given that it was the most accessible for me at the time and so I saved up as a man of my constructor and I managed to buy my first small little two-bedroom condo And that was, I think I was 19 when I bought that. And that ultimately, as I started investing in real estate, I loved it, but I felt it was just such a long game. And being like a early 20 year old, Mm. I was just like, I want more excitement. So then I started going into day trading. And then I was like, 
too much excitement headaches <laughs> migraines like this is way too much excitement and i started to realize that everyone when it comes to investing whatever it is that you're investing in you have to find what works for you as an individual and i realized that for me i'm actually very much on the long time scale of things and most bitcoiners to be honest what i see they're on that long time scale they they want to look into the future have an idea about where we're heading in the future and then bet big in the, in that realm whereas uh, you also see people that prefer that fast paced lifestyle. They want the day trading and whatnot. But for me, what I found, it was too stressful. And to be honest, I felt it was too much around luck and uh, more than skill. You see people that have these long streaks. They think they're they're incredible traders and then all of a sudden they blow up. And so ultimately that kind of led me down this route of slowly extending my time frame again from day trading to swing trading, which is kind of monthly positions. And then down into a value investing. And so when I think about value investing, it really, that's when I started to feel, feel like I kind of had like a bit of a home. I had like, this is, this is me. I feel like if I'm able to really deeply know something, analyze something and feel like I know the intricacies of how this company works, then that is how I'm going to ultimately create the lifestyle that I want and have this passive income. But then what I started to realize, which is what you pointed out, is that this environment, we've gone from, and I would say over the last 50 years, interest rates at 20% down to interest rates near the zero bound. Mm -hmm. And so that has gone from an environment where value investing was incredible in the 70s, in the 80s. And this is kind of where Warren Buffett made his millions. But as if anyone follows Warren Buffett here, Warren Buffett has not done so well over the last kind of 20 years. And that's because as interest rates kind of slowly trend down, it changes the environment. And the environment trends from a value investing environment to a growth environment. And I'll briefly explain why, and then I'll, I'll let you talk because mm. I'm probably rambling. But not at all. when you think about interest rates, most people only know them as these things that the central banks manipulate. But the reality is that interest rates in a free market are basically a measure of risk in the economy. Interest rates naturally rise when there's risk in the economy and people feel you know what, I'm conservative, I want to be able to uh, keep most of my money in cash. Because of that, it's hard to obtain cash. The people require a high yield in order for them to be able to lend out their cash and vice versa. When the economy is doing well, then interest rates start to kind of fall again. And so you get this natural equilibrium uh, based on risk in the economy. But the problem is when central banks kind of start to step in, it starts to throw all of this on its head. And so when times are tough and when risk starts to increase in the economy, when central banks step in and cut interest rates, all of a sudden, you actually incentivize borrowing, you incentivize risk-taking in a period when risk is already high. So you start to exacerbate the situation. Mm. And so the problem that we face right now is that when you cut interest rates, what ends up happening is it extends the time horizon of a business. Because if you think about it, if interest rates are lower, then expenses for that business are lower. So it extends the time horizon for that business. And so what we have seen over the last 15, 20 years is a massive boom in these growth tech companies. Many of them are unprofitable. Many of them have insane amounts of debt and money is moving out of traditional value. Uh, so even though you've got these companies that offer incredible amounts of tangible value, they're throwing off cash flow. People ultimately are trying to bet big on these uh, unicorn stocks, on the the Uber, on the WeWork, on the all the soft bank stuff that they're investing in. And, and ultimately it creates a very speculative, risky environment and that's what we're experiencing right now. The last point that I'll add is when we start to have interest rates cut, what ends up happening is we have a system that incentivizes borrowing. When we start to see increased borrowing, naturally, when banks start lending, the money supply starts to increase. So we start to experience inflation. 
And as we start to experience inflation, well, guess what? Given that our cost of living starts to increase, given that prices start to rise, we're actually incentivized to invest. We're no longer incentivized to store our savings in the currency. And so this is also further pushing up all of a lot of these speculative assets. It's pushing up growth stocks and whatnot. And so ultimately, I, I say all of this because I started to realize I went through this whole value investing kind of viewpoint. And then I started to realize this is this hasn't been a value investing environment for the last 20 years. This is a speculative environment that's fueled by intervention. And I started to realize that something was wrong. And I didn't quite know what it was at the time. So that led me down gold and then ultimately to Bitcoin. Anyway, long rambling approach. There we go. Wow. No, that's a great way to put it. And I think you really eloquently described the problem. I mean, the the the, the thread, the common thread throughout there really is interventionist policies. And it doesn't matter whether it relates to the cost of capital in the context of central banks or if it relates to governments who are doing all sorts of things to try and prop up a housing market, a.k.a. Australia and Canada, um, from what I understand. Um, they will do everything in their power to manipulate the markets so that it doesn't go down. And so in that instance, it's very hard for you as a person who is seeking value to uh, allocate capital efficiently where you've got central authorities essentially pulling the strings and putting different things on the scale. And it's um, it's very difficult to make a determination. So I guess that leads neatly to the world of Bitcoin, because obviously in that instance, we don't have anyone pulling the strings. And was that something that initially attracted to you, uh, you to Bitcoin from the outset was the fact that it was just this... Um, this sort of scarce asset with uh, without a single issuer who can manipulate the supply? You know what? It's one of those things. And actually, so on the Once Bitten podcast with Daniel Prince, he talks about these kind of like pre-Bitcoin orange pill moments. And I think back and I'm like, I, I, I think of this as very profound, which is many of us pre-Bitcoin have these orange pill moments that are ultimately leading us to Bitcoin. But this is way before Bitcoin was created. And I had a few of them. So the first one, was when I was about nine years old, I remember saving up for about three months for a scooter. This scooter was at the toy store. I wanted it so badly. I saved up for the scooter for about three months and I walked into this toy store with my dad and my two brothers. And as we walked up to go pay for the scooter, my dad was like, ah, you know what? I feel bad that you're getting a scooter and your brothers aren't. So I'm going to pay for your brother's scooter and you've got to pay for your own. And all of us, I was like devastated. I was absolutely <laughs> devastated. But what I realized in in like a microcosm, this is the Cantillon effect. It is those who are closest to the money printer uh, benefit disproportionately. And so I started to realize, I was just like, man, the world is unfair. This is so frustrating. And so this is one of those little moments where I started to feel like, am I incentivized to save or should I instead just work on kind of cozying up to my dad to get the money that I want. And it's interesting because I now see, I lean very much like libertarian free market. Mm. Yet my brothers who have always kind of maybe taken the approach of kind of cozying up to my parents to get what they want, they're very socialist. And so you start to see how your environment plays a role in our political views. And so that was kind of one event. Wow. Another one was I started to realize, what was it? When I'd probably say when I was about five or six years old, my parents separated. And I was kind of raised by a single mum. And what I started to recognize was that my mum had to go out and work. And in order to put a roof over our heads in a world that is basically facing inflation, in, a world, in, in order to be able to put a roof over our heads and food on the table, she had to work more and more and more. And so that meant she had less time for us as kids. I started to realize that money is ultimately 
the, the common thread between many of the issues we face in society. Parents want to spend time with their children, but children naturally, or sorry, parents naturally, they have to be able to support their children financially. And so when our monetary environment starts to break down and deteriorate, it starts to play a role in everything. It starts to play a role in politics. It starts to play a role in business. It starts to play a role in our environment. And in this instance, it's playing a role in our relationships because our parent, our parents are no longer able to meet our emotional and nurturing needs because they ultimately have to prioritize putting food on the table. And so there was a couple of these little moments like this one and like the one with my dad when I started to uh, recognize that money is more than just this thing we transact with. Money, to me, the way I see it, money is like language. It's a medium uh, of expression. And what we're expressing when we spend money is what we value. And so ultimately, mm -hmm. when you start destroying money, when money no longer acts as a store of value, when money, you can't spend it where you see fit, what ends up happening is you start to see all these symptoms in society. And those, I would argue, are the symptoms we see today. We start to see social unrest. We start to see uh, environmental destruction because we're just trying to consume. We start to see a breakdown of politics because we're incentivized to think short-term and whatnot. And these are all symptoms of a breakdown in our ability to express what we value. Yes. Okay. So let's let's unpack the Cantillion effect because I often hear um, it being spoken about and it's been articulated in various ways. I tend to think of the Cantillion effect as being something along the lines of when there's some sort of economic crisis, those that are rich are typically the asset holders. They create, they print money. And as a result, asset prices go up. Those that are just wage earners, um, people are just savers. The value of their currency goes down. The assets become increasingly out of reach and the wealth divide grows. I mean, that to me is a fairly crude way of explaining it, but I don't feel satisfied by it. I don't know how you explain it to people. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. And in simple, it's just when you have a central planner and that central planner dictates where money will flow, naturally those who are closest to the central planner are going to benefit disproportionately. And this is where I think what really stood out, and it kind of goes back to your previous question, what really stood out to me with Bitcoin is that, uh, and actually it's a quote that was by um, uh, completely blanked, the, the CEO of um, Stone Ridge Asset Management, he talks about it. He says, Bitcoin is a system built on rules instead of rulers. And it's I Ross think what Stevens. I'm, Ross Stevens, that's it. Yeah. I'm always like Steven something. What is it? Yeah. Anyway. Stevens yeah. Ross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, that one quote for me sums up Bitcoin. I think that it is truly incredible because no longer do you have that Cantillon effect when you're dealing with Bitcoin. Because no one individual, no one entity can govern the flow of Bitcoin, where it goes to, where it doesn't go to and whatnot. And so ultimately, we're all on an even playing field. And I think that that is necessary for any monetary system. And I say that because humans are flawed. We may have a phenomenal leader one year or one four-year term that is able to act in the best interest of the populace and put laws in place that uh, promote prosperity and fairness. And that can be totally reversed in the next leader who comes into power. And, and because of that, I very much believe that you need a system that basically sets ground rules so that at least everyone is on an even even keel, even playing field. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter how good your intentions are. I think the political system is such that you will necessarily have to bend your principles if you wish to be successful. And then there's also that quote, maybe it's Nietzsche, something like um, there's good and heart, uh, there's good and evil that runs through the center of every man, something to that effect. 
like we all have it we all like to say we're good or these people are bad and and the reality is we have aspects of it within each of us and if given sufficient power i think the the temptation would be overwhelming in all of us i think uh it's something I think most Bitcoiners would agree with that you want to be able to take the ability to change rules um, out of the hands of people, which is fundamentally what Bitcoin does, because people and human nature is such that it doesn't matter how good your intentions are. Ultimately, you will succumb and you will give into temptation and you will create rules that favor you and your family and your friends. And you might even engage in some sort of egregious uh, human rights abuses and things like that, all in the name of good. Um, and maybe we'll talk about your prime minister a bit later in speaking of human rights abuses, uh, especially this week after you had an actual Nazi in parliament. I mean, that was, oh, blackface, Justin, eh? that guy just blows my mind. <laughs> oh, I was saying to my wife on our morning walk this morning, there's few people that trigger me more. Then uh, it was basically Dan Andrews, Justin Trudeau, and Jacinda Ardern. And two of the three have now quietly disappeared. And no doubt will be sucking on the taxpayer's teeth in some way, shape, or form in the, in the future. But um, oh, it just drives me absolutely mad. Well, but let's not worry about politics. So well, and it's, it's interesting. I was just going to say something. That like, yes, I, grew up, I grew up in the UK. I was born in London. My mum is a New Zealander. So I was raised in New Zealand. And then I moved here when I was 14. So I now live in Canada. And so I feel so fortunate to have a Canadian passport, a British passport and a New Zealand passport. And now when the pandemic kicked off, I was like, you know what? I'm sitting fine. If something happens to one of these countries, at least I can move to another. And now I'm like, I live in three countries that are like the most progressive woke places you can live yeah. in. I'm just like, these passports are useless. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We had a, um, I did a presentation actually at the, one of the Bush bashes. Uh, perhaps you've mm -hmm. heard of it. One of those little mm -hmm. There's conferences we do uh, three times a year. And it was, if not Australia, then where? And um, obviously, Australia is my plan B. I'm a South African, came here, it's almost five and a half years now. And, you know, when I look at all the trade-offs, there's no solutions, there's only trade-offs. When I look at all the trade-offs, Australia is far and away the best option for me at this point in my life and my family. It's just incredible opportunity, economic opportunity, safety. Even sometimes uh, during COVID, they took safetyism to the extreme. Uh, which I found completely insufferable, drove me mad. And I said, all right, that's the last time that happens. But you need, I said, basically what I was saying is there's no point in having a, a setup like yours where it's like, you know, um, you know, the UK and New Zealand and, and Australia or Canada or whatever, because they're all the same. They're all just in lockstep. You need, some, you need an outlier. And so Africa is a bit of an outlier. Like South Africa might decide to do something different to the rest of the sort of G7, if you like. And then you've got a case of, well, maybe you should throw in and it sounds crazy at this point in time, but, you, you know, they'll be like in a South American country or an Eastern European country. And I like to use the example of Singapore, say 30, 40 years ago, kind of backwater swampy place with, um, you know, agriculture was its main export. And today it's like one of the, it's probably one of the wealthiest places per capita uh, on a GDP per capita basis. And it's just through, I mean, uh, just through sheer, uh, just through uh, like a capitalist market driven economy have been able to transform the fortunes of people. I mean, we can talk about the human rights aspect, but that's my little rant there. Cause I think about this stuff all the time. Cause I went really deep down the rabbit hole during COVID because I was just like, okay, I need a plan C. I've got to figure out what are the options and TLDR and all the islands, by the way, all those Caribbean islands, they're not going to work. It's just, I don't think the trade-offs are worth it. You're isolated. It's expensive. And you don't get as much visa-free travel to 
as you would with the Canadian Aussie passport. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. I actually just got back. Uh, what was it? What's day today? Thursday. I got back on Sunday from Roatan. So Roatan's the island oh, yes. of, uh, of Honduras. I spent like uh, seven or eight days there. And the one thing that I would say that is really incredible is I've not had a chance to make it down to El Salvador. And Canada, you can't spend Bitcoin. Like there's nowhere to spend Bitcoin. And oh, really? so being able to be in a community that is open to adopting or that if you're in Prospera, which is their special economic zone, which is on the island, their Bitcoin is essentially legal tender within that zone. And so many of the locals, even outside of that zone on the island, accept Bitcoin. It is incredible seeing people using Bitcoin, using Lightning day to day. And what I think is phenomenal is we were talking about this uh, in relation to El Salvador. And that is that El Salvador, they had to push through the adoption of Bitcoin quickly because if they had kind of come out and said, okay, we're thinking about adopting Bitcoin, this is our plan, then the IMF or the Bank of International Settlements or the World Bank would have shut them down. So they had to move quickly. But ultimately, that meant that they had no education in place. And now they're rolling out suddenly this thing called Bitcoin. And most of the locals, they have no idea that it's a decentralized currency. They saw the inflation when the uh, they experienced the transition onto the US dollar. Mm. And they were already uh, kind of, I would say, disheartened when uh, there wasn't even a mention of something like Bitcoin. Uh, whereas when you look at, say, Roatan, Roatan has taken the approach in reverse. So you've got my good friend Dusan, he has a company called Amity Age. You've got another couple of companies and their whole goal is to educate the locals and then allow them to adopt it in time when they understand it. And they already have 60, 70, 80 companies just on this small island that accept Bitcoin because they're choosing to accept Bitcoin. And when people choose and they've done that education on their behalf, it's phenomenal, phenomenal. They're, they're, they're behind it. Wonderful. Oh, that's great to hear because that actually it's a good segue into kind of the next question, which I was going to ask is that, in terms of adoption, when you think about going forward, what are going to be some of the key drivers? I mean, you, you've touched now on these sort of small circular economies. I know Joe Hall's doing some great work, you know, traveling around Peru, Dan Held shitting all over him, telling him he's uh, virtue signaling. <laughs> and then, you know, you've got Anita Posh doing educational work there in Africa. I had a chat with um, Hadman Fafid of Bitcoin Akasi. And I, yeah, I'll probably be catching up with him in Jan when I go to the Adopting Bitcoin conference. But you know, you've got all those little communities, you've got institutional adoption with these spot ETF that's, you know, on the horizon, and then it gets denied. Um, and you're like, well, what's going on, Gary? And then you've got, you know, things like number go up, or you've got remittances, and you've got all these different aspects, or the fact that it's confiscation proof, or um, uncensorable, or the fact that it banks people who have no access to things like actual like banks or visa or any of those types of facilities. Um, which of those things do you think is going to create the most momentum? I mean, some say Africa is going to be the place. Uh, it's the sort of global South. Others say it'll institutional adoption. I mean, I don't know. Where do you lie in that sort of debate? You know, it's, it's a really challenging one. I, I tend to look at it from a few different perspectives. My first perspective is I would love to see a hyper Bitcoinized world, but I don't think we're going to see that unless we see a breakdown. And although I know Jeff Booth talks about let's try and create a bridge so that we can transition slowly, I think that given our inflationary environment is sucking our time because our cost of living is constantly rising, we're constantly having to work more. Because of this, we have less and less and less brain capacity to dedicate towards learning and actually forming our own opinion on things. And so ultimately, what I think this ends with is this society that kind of slowly breaks down and only after we see a breakdown of fear are we able to recognize that decentralization 
is a necessity in our in our money in order to be able to remove government and be able to remove central planners from kind of the governance of money and so maybe that's a little pessimistic but i just day to day i know so many people that are so incredibly smart and they just cannot get it they understand there's an issue and you start talking about bitcoin and they don't see the central planners as an issue and i'm just like have you looked at our increasing debt have you looked at mm. the intervention the, the manipulation of interest rates have you looked at like how we're basically propping up and kicking this can down the road. And and I think that maybe I'm the one who's blind, but I, I think that a lot of people, there's some incredibly smart people in this world and we're not necessarily seeing the writing on the wall. And so I tend to lean towards, we're going to see a breakdown before we're able to see a major adoption. That said, I do think there's a few major factors that can obviously increase adoption in, I would say the next coming years leading up until a breakdown of sorts, which obviously I don't know, I, I, can't, I can't label a time as to when that's going to happen. But what I would say, the first thing is it is so incredible to see people, and we kind of briefly touched on it at the start, which is we all have our own unique perspective. And this is what's amazing about Bitcoin versus, say, the US dollar. I don't know anyone who's dedicated their life to the US dollar to go and push the US dollar. I don't know people who are quitting their jobs to go and start educational platforms teaching people about how amazing the US dollar is. I know countless people who are giving everything they've got, remortgaging their house in order to try and educate people about Bitcoin and why Bitcoin. And the community is just phenomenal. And we have everyone from people with a background in finance to dentists, to teachers, to mountain bike instructors and lawyers such as yourself. And so what I think is so fascinating about this is that we all have a unique perspective. And I urge anyone who's listening to this, I stood on the sidelines for a couple of years, just watching kind of the Twitter Bitcoin community grow and grow and grow. But it wasn't until actually you step in and put yourself out there and start voicing your opinions, voicing your perspectives, that you really start to get involved and you actually create change. And so I would say like, whoever you are, no matter what your background is, you have your own unique perspective on Bitcoin. And so share that perspective. And you'll be amazed because you will speak to a certain cohort of people that the Greg Fosses, the Michael Saylors of the world don't speak to. And this mm. is where like, there's so many, say, white individuals in Bitcoin. If you're living in Africa and you're just a local individual and, and you're passionate about Bitcoin, you speaking to your local community is going to have a much greater impact than listening to some finance guy in New York. And so I urge Amen. anyone who's passionate about Bitcoin to talk about it, to be able to share their perspectives, because ultimately Bitcoin has no marketing department. We are its marketing department. Yeah, I, I, I truly yes, believe I that. agree. 100%. And yeah, it's um, this is something that I actually touched on when I spoke with um, Hadman for a few recently of Bitcoin Akasi. It was like, he's not going to go into the township and try and orange pull people. He's got coaches who are connected in the community, who are respected in the community, and who are able to at least bring a degree of credibility. To have some white fella walk into a black township and say, hey guys, I've got this sort of thing for you that's going to help your purchasing power in the future because the South African rand's a piece of shit. I mean, they're going to be like, listen, we've we've heard enough scams <laughs> in our life. Do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, you've probably got a bridge to sell me. So absolutely in that front. And I also have a similar, I had a similar feeling to you in the, in the beginning when I first, I, I think you and I, our, our paths have been very similar in the sense that in it was early in 2020 that this Bitcoin thing really dropped on me. And it was something that, Simon Dixon had said was, you know, um, if governments are just printing all this money, then why are we paying taxes? And as a sort of person who's got libertarian inclinations, I was like, yeah. And then you start going down that whole rabbit hole. And then I was like, cool, I want to do something about this. So I created this little educational company called Bitcoin Shepherd 
thinking that I could, you know, persuade people. But again, nobody was really, nobody wants to pay for that. And I was anonymous and I didn't, you know, because I was sort of trying to keep within the ethos of Bitcoin privacy and all this stuff. And then eventually I came out of the Bitcoin closet, uh, like a couple, like a year later or whatever. And I was like, I'm Dale Warburton. This is what I do. And I love what I'm doing. And, um, you know, if I can just help bring on some people, I don't speak to everyone. If you if you really want fascinating macro takes, then I'm probably not going to be your guy. Um, you know, but I, I think I fulfill a certain role in the community as do you. And as does anybody who wants to just put something out there, whether it's a podcast, whether it's in writing. Um, and it actually leads me to a question that I, I did want to touch on is I've just seen this and it's nice to touch on topical stuff. We tend to, as a Bitcoin community, we have we have family disagreements and it's sometimes quite unfortunate. Um, sometimes they result in splits where we have the ordinal crew, the 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 wizards, um, you know, and I was just, I was like pretty bummed to see the likes of Nick Carter and, and Dan Hold and, you know, go go down that route. Cause I really initially thought they were really credible. I think folks like Udi are just idiots and trolls. So I don't, I don't know. I'm not really worried about people like him. Now I'm seeing this fighting happening where, I've seen some folks going 99% of Bitcoin influencers, and maybe that would, I mean, yeah, that would include you and me. <laughs> Don't know how influential we are. are I'm, I'm are not fake. influential, so you don't have to worry about me. <laughs> I'm sure we've influenced at least one person, maybe. But, you know, 99% of them are fake. And I just thought to myself, like, you know, that's, I don't know if you're talking about YouTubers who are just trying to, who've got like all this clickbait and, and then are also doing shitcoinery. But yeah, I was like, that just doesn't resonate with me at all. Like, you know, I, I think that as long as you are promoting Bitcoin and not shitcoins, I'm pretty happy with what you're doing. Um, As long as you're promoting like the key ethos of, you know, not your keys, not your coins. I mean, if you're there, you know, advocating for Celsius, I just don't think that's, you know, that's like being, I guess, if you're a Christian, then, you know, going to a mosque on the weekends, it, it doesn't resonate with me. Like it defies the whole point of this whole space. But I don't know, what do you, what is your take, man? I don't know if you've seen all the the drama. Oh man, there's there's so much drama. Uh, you know what? <laughs> okay. So it, you can approach it from so many different ways and you're always going to piss off people, no matter what, what way you approach it. And the way that I kind of tend to approach it is that I'm not, I would say I'm a Bitcoin maximalist in a sense that I'm very pro Bitcoin. I would say that I'm not a toxic maximalist. And the reason why I say that is that I think many times when you see a lot of individuals that have never necessarily found community, they've always struggled to kind of build that friendship group. And all of a sudden they find Bitcoin. What ends up happening is they will protect Bitcoin community at all costs. That doesn't mean that they are necessarily pro Bitcoin and understand Bitcoin deeply and intimately. It is that whenever anyone threatens their community, they're going to defend it. And mm. I think that a lot of people conflate, this guy knows a lot about Bitcoin and this guy is simply being protective because this is the first time he's ever found a community. And so I think being able to understand that is really, really important. Um, and then on top of that, the way I kind of think about, the reason why I say I'm pro-Bitcoin and I'm not a Bitcoin ma um, toxic maximalist is the fact that I like I've worked in schools, I've worked with people, I've worked with, I've been coaching for years and when I see the approach of kind of like slamming anyone who's against anything other than Bitcoin, when I see people slamming anyone who even mentions an altcoin or whatnot, the way I see this is like parenting in the 60s versus what we understand about parenting today. 
back then you like hit your kids with a ruler and you criticize them if they don't do what you want. And we know that that's not an effective way to parent. It's not an effective way at all. Whereas when we look at parenting today, ultimately, if you want someone to go deep down the rabbit hole, you have to create curiosity and you have to answer their questions. And I think all, like I would say the majority of us, including myself, we went through the altcoin space first. Uh, well, sorry, I found Bitcoin first. And then naturally you see all the glimmery items over there on the shelf and you kind of start looking at the glimmery items and it takes you a little bit of time. And then eventually you realize that actually there's just fake, <laughs> fake gold sprayed on top of all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think what I started to realize is that if it wasn't for a few like key individuals like Preston Pish um, and like Michael Saylor and whatnot, that were really just looking at Bitcoin, that's Daz calling me. I'm just going to. Oh, oh, does. Dear How dare Daz <laughs> interrupts us? <laughs> God damn it, Daz. Anyway, yeah. So I think it's one of those things like there's a few like really key individuals that were able to kind of say, by the way, your camera's frozen, bro. Oh, Daz. Daz okay, there we go. Unacceptable. Hey? Sl- shut down the computer. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. Okay. So you were like, yeah, um, without the guys like uh, Preston Pish and Michael Saylor and that sort of thing. Yeah. So without those individuals who you'll rarely hear them just slamming other entities, instead, they focus on the value proposition of Bitcoin itself. And I think that's where I tend to direct my energy towards the value Bitcoin is offering, whether it's on a humanitarian level, whether it's on a financial level, whatever that level may be, rather than spending my time bad mouthing others. Now, that's not to say that every so often you're going to come across an outright scam and you can label that scam and mention that it is a scam. And I I wholeheartedly agree. I think that we spend too much energy attacking others and that's not productive for the space. And we see people like I know people from the interior of BC that are kind of in the tech industry and they have capital to invest and they're not investing in Bitcoin because they see this internal fighting and they're just like, why would I invest in something where there's this internal fighting? And so sometimes I think we do ourselves a disservice Mm-hmm. when we look like we're internally fighting when ultimately although i would say all of my energy is dedicated towards bitcoin i have no interest in anything else the one thing i kind of tend to stay away from is calling things shit coins because we are a free market and we get frustrated when people lump crypto and bitcoin together yet then we're going and calling things shit coins which is lumping all crypto together and so i think that we're doing the same thing that we're accusing others of doing to us And so I think that ultimately I tend to think of things as altcoins, alternative coins and Bitcoin, which is where I want to dedicate my energy, because I think that this internal fighting, this kind of labeling, this name calling, I tend to think of it as like unproductive. Absolutely. I think what you're describing there is saying like, yes, in principle, I might well agree with what you, with the, what the toxic maxis are on about. And, and I agree with their sentiments, but the question is, is your strategy effective? I mean, I, I've read a little bit about like the art of war and things like that. And one of the things that the Communist Party or the Chinese Communist Party has done so well is they haven't tried to attack the West in, in the form of a hot war. They've got this sort of multi-pronged approach that involves infiltrating culture and all sorts of smart ways to ultimately exert influence and dominance over the West. And that's sort of like, um, that's I, I like to think of that's how we need to defeat uh, crypto is that trying to hit, hit it head on is not necessarily always the best strategy. It could be but one prong, but it, I don't think it should be the dominant part of our attack. I think the main way that we should try and attract people to Bitcoin 
is by promoting it as opposed to just crapping on the other stuff. But that said, we do need to be able to essentially call out obvious scams when the result could be that people lose millions and millions of dollars, like in the case of FTX. So yeah, it's something that I grapple with all the time because I'm a free market fundamentalist. Like I just believe as long as you're giving, as long as people are giving their fully informed consent, and that's kind of a bit of a legal term that would be like, you need to actually fully understand what you're getting into and the consequences of it. As long as you're doing that, I don't care what you do. I mean, most people know that gambling results in losses. Most people, I don't think there's people that believe that you've got a 90% chance of winning. I mean, if you do, I, I don't know where to begin, but you know what I mean? So that's pretty, that's pretty clear. I think the, the challenge I have with crypto is it's, uh, and I'd be interested to get your take, but I tend to say they're not really coins um, because it implies it's a currency and we've already got currencies. Um, it's more like a, an equity token. It's a venture capital equity token that's liquid with 24-7 mark-to-market pricing uh, that doesn't have disclosures. They've raised capital illegally outside of traditional capital markets with investor protections, and they've managed to evade that through quote-unquote technology and they also are not under any obligations, legal or otherwise, to disclose the shareholdings and who the early investors were and the rates that they got in. And so, yeah, I tend to just say, look, it's a completely different thing. There are software projects and companies that 99% of the time don't even have a product market fit. I'd be interested to get your take on why you focus on Bitcoin and not crypto or how you actually view crypto because that's fundamentally what I'm trying to do with the show. <laughs> Again, you hit the nail on the head, which is where like these security or these other tokens, all of these altcoins, the majority of them, 99.9% .9 of them are just unregistered securities. And now it's a challenging one because this is where I kind of have an internal paradox. And that internal paradox is the fact that I believe in less uh, regulation because I think that ultimately less regulation creates a more prosperous economy because we allow innovation to flourish. But the reality is, the environment we're in is a high regulatory environment. And many of these tokens have basically just tried to circumnavigate that and just go and release this stuff. And because of that, I'm not saying that there's no um, well-meaning individuals and people are not trying to create value in the space, but the majority of these tokens end up going to zero and countless, I would say the majority of them are also scams that basically ultimately they're there for a month or two, they're there for a year, and then they just go to zero while the... Uh, well, the, the CEO, the founders end up just kind of using all of this new liquidity as uh, exit, exit potential. So it's one of those things like I see the majority of it is just crap. But again, I tried to steer away from calling it shit coins just because I don't want to paint everything with the same brushstroke. You can think about it as like the 2000 tech boom, although the majority of things went to zero because everyone just kind of capitalized on uh, the dot-com era and having a website, which is obviously what we're doing now with Bitcoin and blockchain. Everyone wants blockchain in the name. The reality is the majority of it will go to zero. But I'm not going to say that out of the, however many there are, eight to 10,000 tokens, that every single one is going to zero. And But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to direct my attention there. My attention is on Bitcoin, because I think for me, although there may be something that maybe you could use Bitcoin to go and solve, sorry, maybe you could use blockchain to go and solve X, Y, Z. But the problem is, I think that the majority of the issues we face in society stem from money. And because I think they stem from money, if we can fix our monetary situation, I think we can change many of the issues we face in society. And so ultimately, that's why I dedicate all of my energy to Bitcoin. 
because it's the one that I feel I can add the most value and that energy that goes into Bitcoin can create the most change. So that's kind of how I tend to view Bitcoin versus altcoins and whatnot. Yeah, that's fair. And what's actually quite funny is in that, you know, in the current frame that or framework that we live in, where we've got central planners who've manipulated the cost of capital down to near zero. And obviously now we're sitting at a quite a significantly higher level than that. You had venture capitalists who had access to near free money, who had all the incentives in the world to just create a um, yo-yo coin, allocate, you know, 30% to themselves, 20% to other individuals, and then just uh, list the rest. And, uh, and then sort of, you know, two years later exit as, you know, a la, um, the All In Podcast Boys um, with Chamath and various others mm -hmm. who, you know, infamously, I'll put that in the show notes, actually. It's one of my favorite clips where they literally just talking about their Solana bags and they were trying to like, you guys like, you were trying to sell me your bags. And it's just like, they they openly sort of bragging about the fact they just want to get rid of this piece of shit that does nothing. Um, and they know it. And so I struggle with that. But when I look at things holistically, Seb, I say, I, I think your approach is very reasonable it sort of embodies the, um, I guess it's, it's, it's uh, maybe it's like relates to your background in the sense of like, you've, you've seen how to influence people and influencing people by being shouty is not typically effective. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to do is stand out and do something different within the Bitcoin mm -hmm. space by at least just saying, look, in every show, I want my guests to talk about why Bitcoin, not crypto, but I certainly don't want to spend like an hour talking about crypto because i mean i just 100 percent. it's just like that it, it to me it's just like touching it now let's talk about all the other stuff in bitcoin now apologies there's my pup just having a little scream shout as we talk about it okay so now let's uh i wanted to touch on one other thing here about uh you know going back to the value investing side when you think about bitcoin obviously number go up is crucial as, as far as i'm concerned for global adoption i think Part of the reason why we haven't seen anything explosive in the last while, you know, and, and retail adoption taking uh, up Bitcoin of late is just the fact that it's been pretty much flat uh, for the better part of six months, 25 to 30,000 US, let's say. And, um, you know, I, I guess when one is valuing Bitcoin, I'd be interested to think about how you, how do you actually look at valuing Bitcoin, I guess, today or in the future? Like, what is its potential um, maybe we should just uh, call this the hopium segment. <laughs> so this is always such a challenging one. I wouldn't necessarily say that I have a definitive method for saying this is what I think it's going to be. Because the thing as well is it's important to note that this is a snapshot at this moment, barring like barring no inflation, no monetary expansion. And so as we move forward, as our currency continues to devalue, that that target continues to increase. And so the way that I tend to think about it is, kind of built upon Jeff Booth's approach to this deflationary world that we live in. And so for those that are kind of unfamiliar, technology is always advancing to drive costs lower. And the way he describes it is technology is always trying to push things to the marginal, marginal cost of production. And you can think about this as like, if you go and rent a movie from Blockbuster 20 years ago, you would have to pay gas and time to drive down to Blockbuster. You'd then spend 10, 15 bucks renting your movie at Blockbuster. You then drive all the way home, spending time and energy and gas. And then on top of that, you then watch the movie. Then you got to do the whole thing again to drop off the movie. The amount of time and energy just to watch one movie is obscene. Whereas now we have Netflix and for whatever it is, 10 bucks a month, I don't actually have Netflix, so I don't know. But 10 bucks a month for 
thousands, tens of thousands of TV series, movies at like the touch of a button. Ultimately, technology is driving down costs. It's always trying to improve efficiency. And so with this in mind, let's just say hypothetically, Bitcoin was our global reserve currency. Given that we'd have a fixed supply of 21 million, as productivity increased, as technology drove down prices, our purchasing power would increase. Now, this is phenomenal. If you think about like Moore's law, Moore's law is basically, it states that processing power of, of, of chips doubles every two years. So our ability to process information is doubling every single two years. So when you think about Moore's law, when you think about technology driving down prices, it's not out of the question for technology to be driving down prices at around 10 to 15% a year. So now, what is that in relation to other asset classes? Well, when you look at, say, real estate, real estate has annualized 8.6% a year. Bonds have annualized 5 to 6% a year. Equities are 10% a year, roughly. What that means is that just holding Bitcoin, just holding your currency would outperform all of these other assets. So ultimately, when you think about that, the reason why these assets are worth something in today's environment is because money no longer serves as a store of value. People funnel all their capital into these assets because they don't have another place to store value. And that has meant that real estate, like where I live in Whistler in Canada, 61% of houses are empty because people use them purely just to be able to store value. They don't care about using them. In New York, there's a million houses in New York that are empty, where again, wealthy investors, it's just to park cash because if you hold in cash, you're just going to have a uh, uh, debased currency over time. And so if you have Bitcoin as a world reserve currency, ultimately, there wouldn't necessarily be a need unless you want to speculate, unless you want to be able to try and uh, achieve above average returns. There's not necessarily the same need to go and invest in real estate, to invest in bonds, to invest in equities, because our money naturally incentivizes us to save through this kind of 10 to 15% increase in purchasing power due to technology. So what does that mean? Well, when you think about the real estate market, the real estate market is $280 trillion in size. The debt markets, the bonds and whatnot, are $250 trillion, and the stock market is $100 trillion. So right there, we have, what is that, like $630 trillion? That's $630 trillion that a large portion of that would go back into the currency because it makes sense to. Because naturally, you can save in the currency and achieve greater returns than you would do by sitting real estate bonds or um, equities. And so for me, when you're thinking about $630 trillion, let's just say people still obviously need to purchase a house. But if they're only purchasing a house for their primary residence because they need to live and the rest of their savings are not going into real estate, but they're going into Bitcoin. Well, let's just say even half of that. So half of the $630 trillion, that's $315 trillion going into Bitcoin. That is, we're, we're trading at, what is it? We're trading at um, about 500, roughly $500, 500 billion. billion. So that's like, 600 times the current price 600 like that is profound and so mm. obviously i don't have a time frame for that i'm not going to say do a balaji bet and say it's going to be in three months time we're going to be at that price but yeah. it's one of those things that i you see the potential of something like bitcoin because yeah. it changes our dynamics in society and what that also means and this is where i think it's profound is that if people don't necessarily need to store their purchasing power in things like real estate well, real estate returns back to what it is intended for, for living in. So real estate prices start to collapse because there's far less demand for them. And so naturally it becomes easier to afford a house. It becomes easier to afford that lifestyle we want to live. And so this is where I just think it's truly incredible. Like we're seeing people like Bill Gates buying up farmland left, right, and center. They're not buying up farmland to add value to society and grow crops. They're buying up farmland because land is a scarce asset. 
they're buying up farmland to store value and then they're not even using it for farming. So they're actually removing a productive asset from society and they're reducing the amount of food we're able to grow, the amount of pigs we're able to um, uh, like nurture and whatnot. And so I think when you start thinking about Bitcoin in this terms, it changes our whole dynamic of how we interact with one another. It lowers real estate. It makes our cost of living decrease over time. It incentivizes us to save. Like it's, it's incredible. Absolutely. So, I mean, really what you're talking about there is saying, let's imagine what the total addressable market is and then what slice of that could Bitcoin capture over what time frame? And I mean, therein lies the $10 billion question. Nobody knows because uh, <laughs> that could that could happen in our lifetime. It could happen in 10, in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Mm -hmm. It's really unknown. I, I, you know, when I think about the future, I, I, I tend to think that as long as I'm alive, we're not going to live in a world where there are no fiat currencies and, and everyone's using Bitcoin. I think fiat currencies will persist. Um, I, I just... I look at Bitcoin more as uh, it would be as a um, it would be the type of asset that a central bank would want to put on its balance sheet. By then, mm. it would be less volatile. It'd be more well known, understood, more widely adopted. But I guess what's really exciting to me, and this is just the greed, because we have fear and greed in all of us. And um, I, I heard Hoddle, actually, American Hoddle, talk about this recently, where he was saying, you know, people, some people are better at one of those emotions than others and i think i'm really good with fear like i don't have any stress now like i don't really care what's happening but when it's with when it's the number go up and I, and I see these giant green candles i'm just like i don't know there's just like it's like my dopamine is just going like all over the shot <laughs> and i'm just <laughs> like whoa boy and i get ahead of myself and i start dreaming and envisioning things and stuff but I imagine when it comes to Bitcoin, I honestly think that it's this gradually then suddenly thing because mm -hmm. it's there will be this massive announcement at some point in the future, I believe, where a big country will say we're putting X percent on our balance sheets in our central bank's balance sheet uh, because it's now proven itself to be. Uh, it's defeated all the FUD, you know, it's not environmentally unfriendly. It's not for criminals. It's not for this and that. Um, and nobody can control it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what that's when I think the the suddenly part happens. Obviously, selfishly, I hope it happens sooner rather than later. But it, on the other hand, I also uh, hope that it doesn't necessarily happen that soon so that I can continue to accumulate while it's still relatively low because I know... I feel like it's nothing certain, but it's as close to something as I'm certain about as anything. I don't know how you feel about that one. You know what? I feel exactly this, it's exactly the same way. I say this to a bunch of friends, which is, I do not believe in certainty. I think that an endless amount of things can happen, but there is never something in my life that I've been more confident about in my life. Like I, I think it is truly profound when you start digging into Bitcoin and then you start imagining what this world may look like. And then you start thinking about, how it's altering who we are and how we behave and and what I just discussed, like altering even just incentivizing people to invest in the currency rather than in real estate and whatnot. It, I think it is profound. And one thing that I think is interesting is you talked about like fear and greed. And although, yes, I think that we all naturally have the, the capacity to experience fear and experience greed, I think that a lot of the behavior we experience in society uh, arises from an inflationary system. Like naturally, we are a product of our environment. And when you think about greed, greed arises because in an inflationary system, our ability to live, our ability to put food on the table, our ability to put a roof over our heads is constantly being threatened. And so ultimately, we have to prioritize that above all else. So we become greedy. 
in a system where you've got something like Bitcoin as the base layer, when you've got Bitcoin as a, whether it's a world reserve currency or a lot of countries are using it, that flips it on its head because all of a sudden our cost of living starts to decline over time. We have more time to focus on what it is that we value. And although I would say that I'm a capitalist free market individual, what's interesting is that everyone that I know, whether it's Daz, whether it's myself, whether it is Michael Saylor, we're all uh, capitalist free market individuals, but on a social level in our near community, we're very socialist. We mm. dedicate our time for free. We create platforms, nonprofit organizations. We do this stuff because we want to give back. So I think that ultimately, I believe in a free market and that we should always have the choice to do what it is that we want. But if we want to be socialist and give back to society, we can do that. But what I don't agree with is socialism being pushed on people and saying, you have to uh, pull your own weight. You have to give back to society. You have to do these things because that that's when I think society starts to break down. So mm. anyway, that's long-winded. Long I love it. I love, I love the socialism around because... Um, I, I sent a text to my sister the other day and it was a picture of Jacinda Arden um, going to some, uh, you know, event and she's sort of, uh, she's getting off and she's like wiping her face like, uh, you know, for people just listening, like it's very much like she's hyped up on Adderall kind of like um, Sam Bankman freestyle. And she's like, what's your problem with Jacinda? And I was like, she's a toothy socialist and I just can't stand her. Cause it's like, I really struggle with people who, are socialists because it just it i mean it's it's the antithesis to freedom first and foremost because it's about imposing what you th some, some group of people imposing what they think is best for others and mm -hmm. i don't think it leads to it leads to human flourishing i don't think it leads to productive societies i think i mean history has demonstrated uh in you know ample quantities what it actually does um you know people are worried about fascism and you know the guardian will constantly write about the the far right there's no right by the way it's just very far right or just left wing or correct <laughs> but oh, 100 percent. Um, but but the thing is if you think about the amount of people who have died at the hands of fascists you know uh the likes of adolf hitler and mussolini and um which are the others there's stalin you... there's Mao Zedong. there's although Kendall but those Sun, guys there's... are all on the left side it, it, i'm oh, kind sure. of kind of trying to thinking of like the, the sort of far-right nationalists mm -hmm. racist types i think it's like i mean more than like 100 million people have died at the hands of socialism communism or one form or another as opposed to i believe in the vicinity of say 20 million i mean it's a horrible statistic to be comparing but the reality is actually it's inflicted more harm on society i think than anything else and yet there are people today, young people today, I feel quite disheartened, who still somehow are attracted by the ideas. And either they're like historically illiterate or they're just completely devoid of hope for the future. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that is partially because they don't see any way that they can succeed today, uh, much like their parents did, because houses are out of reach. Um, you know, they might even be worried about things like job security in the future with AI and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, no, I, I, I love having a, a bitch and moan about socialism, man, because um, as a, as a free marketeer, it was really hard living in South Africa because mm -hmm. that's actually what's, that's actually what's happened to that country. It's a manifesta manifestation of socialism implemented um, and over the course of since 1994 for the, it was the first term, uh, I guess, free and fair elections, it's been basically like a slow and steady decline, all just through um, horrific government policy and outright theft. So it baffles me that people still vote for that and, and Justin Trudeau. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me. You know what? I was... 
a couple uh, maybe two years ago this is kind of when the pandemic kicked off i was touring ski touring so we're walking up this mountain i was walking up with one of my good friends and I, the conversation came up about free speech and i was just like so what do you think about free speech and he was like i'm all for free speech like there's all for free speech and then about 10 minutes later he stops and he was like i've been thinking about that i'm all for free speech except for people that are anti-vax they shouldn't have a voice i'm like well, then you're not for free speech because free speech is that you're able to, even if you disagree with someone, you're allowing them to have a voice. And that's ultimately the way I see things is that we cannot determine truth with a capital T. We can have our own truth, but we cannot determine truth ultimately. And so because of that, I don't think one person should be able to say what truth is. And so when you look at, say, advancements in science, innovation, tech, all of these things, it always happens on the fringe. It's never in the main core mainstream narrative. Mm. It's never in the main core bodies. And because of that, I think it's so important to be able to maintain free speech because otherwise we end up finding ourselves in this kind of stagnant kind of mess where we can't have any kind of new life being breathed into things because we're not allowed to talk out, out, out of step. Yeah, absolutely. It's always what Jordan Peterson says, who gets to decide what free speech is. And usually it's not the kind of people that you want to be doing that. Um, the most classic example that I can think of is so it's a South African example. It just sort of highlights just the dynamics at play. So um, some years back, there was this real estate agent who stupidly, I mean, you've got to give her a 10 out of 10 for stupidity, puts out a post on Facebook following uh, January the 1st, which is traditionally where a lot of Zulu people gather around Durban North Beach. And it's usually just like, if you literally look from the sky, you just, there's no space. It's just shitloads of people, you know, usually kids drown. It's just like, it's like a, it's like a huge party. Right. Um, and, and so she put something on the Facebook group or something like that, that said, look what these monkeys did. Okay. Absolute fucking rookie area. Okay. You can't do that, <laughs> but she got, obviously she was, she lost her job. Uh, she went to the human rights tribunal and um, she was guilty. She was found guilty. And, you know, whether I, I don't know what the sort of consequences were, but they were dramatic. I mean, her whole life's wrecked. Everyone knows Penny Sparrow. I mean, someone might even want to Google it from you. <laughs> then we have this guy, this firebrand um, socialist guy called Julius Malema. He's got, uh, they refuse to dress appropriately for parliament because it's colonial. They all wear white, uh, red overalls. Okay. Like, um, and, he he has this whole stadium and I'm talking like 50, 60,000 people chanting kill the boot, which is translated to kill the farmer. And it was a struggle song during apartheid. And he was brought before the commission and they said, okay, no, that's fine. It wasn't literal. He literally hates, he hates um, white people in general. And you're just thinking to yourself, like, you know, that is it. That's the embodiment of just that was like a political decision that was made. And you just think to yourself, like, here you got a guy who's actually inciting real violence and, and a woman who's just saying something deeply offensive and just dumb. And so therein lies a good example of like, you know, uh, who do you want to please free speech? Because there, you know, that was the whole point of the commission. But anyway, I digress. I didn't think I'd be talking about Penny Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like even recently, I saw. I think it was Breedlove posters. This is probably about six months ago. And I thought it was insane, which is if you go into Wikipedia and you type in 
white pride, it's all about racism, absolutely hammering white people. If you talk about Asian pride, black pride, like Middle Eastern pride, Arab pride, whatever, all of these things, it's all very, these are people that are proud about their culture. These are people that are passionate about where they come from. And it's just like, you can't say white pride. You can't say, and it's just in society, we just have a society where you can't voice uh, your opinion on things without just being absolutely canceled and just shunned from society. Oh yeah. It's, it's strange. Cause it's, it's, it's just, and I think it's, um, it's uh, cyclical at the end of the day. Like, I think we're just living through this particular period of time where there's certain groups of people, certain ethnicities that are able to say and do things that others can't. And I think at this point in time, there is a general overwhelming feeling of um, like apologism for the past sins across the West. And I think that's where, I get, and then and then people, I guess, you know, quite opportunistically weaponize that and attack. And yeah, I think that that's what's quite funny because generally, and this is one of the reasons why I left South Africa is that I find kind of racial identity politics absolutely awful. Like it's the last thing I care about. You, it's it's the same as like I had a gay friend who came out to me once, and um, I'd heard via the via, and so it was like, oh, you know. When is he going to tell me? And so eventually he told me. And I was like, listen, dude, I can give a shit. It's not even a relevant consideration in terms of like whether you're my friend or not. Like, it's the same as race. I couldn't care. Like, who are you? What What are your ideas like? Like, can we have a laugh? Can we chat? Can we have mm-hmm. fun? Like, and so there are people in society who are very good at divisive identity politics, whether it's gender, whether it's race, uh, all these types of things. And South Africa is the embodiment of it. And I'm seeing it imported all over the show. And we're seeing it here in Australia now. We've got this thing called The Voice. Maybe you've heard about it. Um, they want to make a, an amendment to the constitution. And, mm-hmm. you it's know, you, you kind of come to these sort of things where you're going like, oh, guys, you know, we we really want to be along, you know, thinking along the lines of Martin Luther King, where, you know, we, we live in a truly colorblind society. Like, it's really irrelevant what the color of your skin is. Um, but what people do is they sort of use ethnicity or race as a proxy for disadvantage and then by the same token they also use that race and ethnicity as a proxy for advantage and like i know a lot of very poor whites or whites who have come from very poor backgrounds who have climbed their way out and then i've also know some black guys who've literally come up in middle class but then if they live in south africa you're automatically classified as advantage disadvantage privileged you know um unprivileged or whatever so it's so distasteful man and i think bitcoin is in general all about individualism eh? when it's, it's it's tough because i think that ultimately we're all we have a common goal we want humanity to flourish we want humanity to survive and so pair together and this this is where i think that when i think about what's happening globally i see the same little things happening in bitcoin and this kind of goes back to that conversation about kind of the toxic maximalism we end up having these little like tribal wars within bitcoin yet we all want the same things it's kind of like people that are even saying the uh, what was it I, I was listening to someone and they were talking about how we need to like we need to get rid of kind of the gold bugs because we need to convert them into bitcoin and i'm like you guys we're on the same team here we're all trying mm. to like kind of recognize that ultimately we do not believe the state should have control over the monetary system. So why are we having these like internal tribal battles when we have kind of a very similar ideology? You know what I mean? 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got to save our, our energy and our oxygen for for people who are just truly, truly doing something different. Yeah. Like, I yeah. mean, like, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to allow for diversity of opinions and views. And I think it's something that I t- talk about quite often is like Bitcoiners have, I found in general, and this is just by engaging with people in real life, not on Twitter. So the first thing is that maybe the caveat is people on Twitter are different um, than they are in real life. Like some people are, uh, you know, I would describe them as absolute pussies uh, if you met them face to face, but they were, are just keyboard killers. Like they will just, they will rip you a new one. But like, if you confronted them face to face, they'd just be like little, little pussycats. So there's that. So don't take it too seriously. Like who cares? Um, like don't get hurty feelings from what people tell you online. Like I've had people talk shit to me and I'm like, you're just irrelevant. You're not for starters. Like I can't take you seriously. Then the other thing is like, Hey guys, we're all in this sort of team together. Why are we sitting nitpicking uh, about sort of minutiae and this person, they're advocating collaborative custody, which doesn't align with, my thing, which is basically we all need to have our seed phrase, you know, embossed on a steel plate somewhere. Like no one's going to do that. So there's also this, I find with some of the absolute, I call them, um, they, they remind me of like, you know, you know, the Ayatollah, um, uh, it's like Bitcoin, um, fundamentalists, uh, you know, and, uh, they have this very puritanical stance that is so uncompromising where, it's just never going to result in adoption. If we want, if we want to move the needle on this, they they're not cypherpunks. They don't care about the the meme pool. They don't care about you know block explorers. They don't care about all these little things. Um, we need to just create tools that enable them to gain exposure. And in some instances, even if that is a spot ETF, it's better than nothing as far as I'm concerned. Even though I will always advocate for self custody. Uh, you know what? It's interesting. Years ago, obviously, being a backcountry mountain bike instructor, we went through this whole argument where the local municipalities are just like, you're not allowed to ride your bike in the in the national parks. You're not allowed to ride your bike in the provincial parks. You're not allowed to ride your bike here. You're not allowed to ride your bike there because of the potential damage you're going to do on the trails. And the way I see it is it's just like, if no one's out there, then what is the point in having anything? Out, like, it, it makes zero sense to me. The way I see it is it's just like, you have to build those access roads. You have to build those trails because by getting people out there, yes, we may be doing a little bit of damage, and, and but ultimately that's how people experience this technology. That's how people experience nature and whatnot. And the same mm. kind of applies to Bitcoin. It's like you can keep Bitcoin this kind of like lock and cage thing where you only run it on a on an air gap laptop that you've kind of set up with your C plate and your and your underground safe and what. But it's just like you're never going to get any adoption. You're never yeah. going to get adoption. And so ultimately, I think there can be layers of Bitcoiners. And when you start out, I started out with Bitcoin on an exchange because I didn't know anything different. And yeah. then I went to Bitcoin on a hot wallet. And then I went to Bitcoin in a hardware wallet. And then I went to Bitcoin with a multi-sig wallet. And now I'm kind of in collaborative custody because you start to realize that there's different ways to approach these things and everything has trade-offs. And on top of that, everyone has different opinions. Everyone has different needs and whatnot. All right, Seb, I've got one other sort of area I'd love us to just touch on. So you've obviously done quite a lot of work, uh, written work in particular, uh, you know, in terms of BUs for Bitcoin. You've also, you're also a co-founder of Looking Glass. Perhaps just touch briefly on, I guess, your written work. Um, and then I haven't even touched on your your blog, 
which I had a quick look at, and it's um it's quite cosmic. It's not necessarily just Bitcoin related, um. But yeah, <laughs> also touch on touch on the uh, the coddle offering that you guys are. Um, I see perhaps that you and Daz are working on uh, or have got out there in the market at the moment. Cool. So now we'll get to the hour marketing spiel. So no. let's mark. <laughs> yeah, get to your marketing <laughs> spiel. Yeah, yeah. No, so I would say that like. I started obviously as a mountain bike instructor. And then I was like, man, I left the mountain bike world in 2020, early 2020. And I was like, what am I doing? I really want to be able to add more value to society. And I want to go back to teaching. But I couldn't because my knees were just completely shot after decades of teaching mountain biking. So I wanted to go back to kind of teaching and educating. And I was curious how I could do that. And so one of my passions, as I kind of talked about, is all the way from my teenage years through, through my 20s. I loved learning how the world works from macroeconomics to finance and how everything is kind of interwoven. And so I started writing. And when I started writing, I never expected, like I dropped out of English when I was 12 years old. I say, I say English is my second language, but I don't speak another language. Like I feel like I struggle enough with English. And so I ended up writing this article called where more isn't, uh, where more isn't better. And Greg Foss, I had 11, I think I had 11 followers on Twitter Greg Foss picked it up and shared it. And then I managed to get into Bitcoin magazine and I was just overjoyed. Never ever would have expected it. And so he ended up basically reaching out to Daz and a few others. And then we started Looking Glass. And so Looking Glass, our whole goal with Looking Glass is to try and make Bitcoin and macroeconomic education readily available to kind of the average individual that speaks to the layman. It removes removes that kind of like jargon. It removes the kind of the heavy uh, content or the fluff. And we yep. want to just try and keep it clear and concise so that the average individual is able to kind of help improve their financial literacy and understanding about what's going on. And so we've had awesome, awesome feedback. And that's been going now for three years, two and a half years, I think it's been going. And then from that, Daz and I, we wrote Beers for Bitcoin. Beers for Bitcoin came out kind of earlier this year, I think it was in about February. And the whole goal of Beers for Bitcoin, we felt as if if you want to read Antonopoulos and go deep into Bitcoin and the code, awesome. If you want to go into breed love and you want to listen to more philosophical stuff, amazing. But we felt as if there was a missing book and that book was a more holistic approach to Bitcoin, again, from the perspective of the layman that really just broke things down. And so uh, it kind of dives into the origin of Bitcoin. It dives into the uh, the, the functionality of Bitcoin, so mining, uh, public-private key cryptography, the ledger, blockchain and whatnot but it very much describes it in a simplistic way that you can understand it. And then it kind of dives into how to actually interact with Bitcoin. So we explore mining and running a node and being a developer and just kind of using it day to day and whatnot. Again, one thing that we have been blown away with is there's not many books out there that we find kind of appeal to that female market. And although we didn't intend that, we've had a ton of females respond and they say they love it. And so oh, we're wow. super, super pumped. That's super fantastic. pumped. fantastic. So, if you're a female and you're looking for a book to kind of share with friends that are curious about Bitcoin, we've had great feedback from that. Um, and then two more things. So the first is kind of, I've actually been, so from that, I've been working on my own personal book that talks a lot about kind of some of the subjects we've discussed in this talk. And that is called The Hidden Cost of Money. And I've been writing this for about a year. And this is, pro- I, I would say it like summarizes my thoughts into a single book. Okay. And it's been such a cool journey being able to put down the kind of experiences you've had in life, how you ended up where you are and how you view money and how money is kind of weaving its influence into all these different areas of society. And that, and ultimately, what can we do to create change? And then I kind of lay it out with Bitcoin. But um, 
It's called The Hidden Cost of Money, How Financial Forces Shape Our Lives in the World Around Us. Perfect. And when is that coming out? That will be coming out in about two months. And I'm at the Brilliant. very tail end. And Daniel Prince just wrote the foreword for it. Greg oh, Foss gave me a I, like Greg Foss gave me a quote for the front cover the, two days ago. So I cannot wait to get that out there because this I've never spent so much time on one piece in my life, like ever in my life. And so, yeah, that, I'm really excited to get that out there. And then uh, finally, how many pages have you got there, Sib? That is okay. Well, to put it into perspective, if you ever read Bullish Case for Bitcoin, that's about the same size as our Beers for Bitcoin book, which is 30,000 words. Okay. The book that I've just written is 90,000 words. So it's three times the size, but 90,000 words is about the size of a normal nonfiction book. So if you read, I don't know, Fall by Randomness by Nassim Taleb, or you read, mm. it's a little bigger, it's about a, a third, third of the size bigger than Price of Tomorrow. And, uh, yeah. but it very much dives into, uh, the history of money, like how do we end up where we are today? How money is influencing society? It then talks about how money influences our behavior. And mm. then it dives into uh, politics, our environment, uh, business, the parent-child bond, and then how it's leading to more authoritarian, totalitarian leadership because of our money is obviously government controls our money. And then I end it similar to Price of Tomorrow, whereby I don't want to make the book outwardly about Bitcoin because there's so much aversion to Bitcoin. If you met, if you bring up Bitcoin at a freaking dinner party, everyone shuts you down. Everyone right shuts there. you down. And so I don't have Bitcoin mentioned in the uh, in the table of contents. I I have it hidden away in the book. So eventually you get to it. But the way that I kind of approached it is we go through all of these challenges in our current system. Mm. And then I reverse engineered Bitcoin and said, what would money look like if we wanted to remove money from state? What would money look like if we wanted to preserve purchasing power? And I basically laid out Bitcoin and then fed them to Bitcoin. So I see it as like an orange pilling book without them knowing they're being orange pilled. That's kind of yeah. how I intend it. That's that's the best way, man. The um the brute force method does not work. No, <laughs> so you've got to kind of slip it through the back door. Uh, it's got to be a slow release orange pull, and, uh, <laughs> and and everyone comes in their own time. I mean, I I tell the story quite often. But my wife was, you know, she was like, yeah, yeah, like okay, Bitcoin, you know, blah blah blah. I, I I'm on I'm on board, etc. But it was only when she had started listening to my pod, and then she came in one day and she was like, I'm a Bitcoiner, and I was like, oh god, thank you after the last how many years just trying to like you know ram this down your throat um you know driving eight hours across the country you know like forcing it to listen to pods and none of you know that didn't work but it was only when i actually created something and then had a conversation it was after episode three she was like okay i got it i'm in let's do this so yeah i think it's amazing what you, you're doing because frankly like i mean i used to do quite a bit of writing myself and it's very time consuming and um you know, but it is rewarding at the same time because you get to really crystallize your thoughts and compartmentalize mm -hmm. them and organize them so that in the future, if somebody poses a question to you know to you at this particular issue, you can at least systematically cover that topic. Whereas, you know, I haven't written for some time because I'm probably because I'm a bit lazy because it's time consuming as hell, right? And, you know, somebody asks a question and I'll just scatter a few little dots, but they're not necessarily ma ma oh, making those connections. So I think that's really cool what you're doing. And having read Beers for Bitcoin, I can definitely um, recommend that, you know, to beginners in particular. I mean, there was, I'd say there's about like 90% that I was pretty familiar with. Like I, I wasn't really that familiar with nonces and all that jazz. Like it, I'm one of those guys who like, I'm not as interested in the details, but when it was all put together and explained there, I found it really interesting. So I think it's a perfect sort of 
I guess, entry-level book because, you know, people go, oh, I'll read the Bitcoin standard. I'm like, no, absolutely not. Like most Way people are not heavy. readers. First thing, most people are not readers. So if you're going to get somebody who is semi-interested in reading, you've got to make it like really accessible and mm -hmm. sufficiently broad that it covers all their questions. You can't have gaping holes. And I think you guys did a really good job in that. And I'm really looking forward to your, yeah, really looking forward to to the next book. Tell me now about this coddle offering because, um, yeah, I've seen that sort of popping up on Twitter and I also noticed it's on uh, Looking Glass's website. For sure. And so I would say, so we have two prongs to so coddle. For those, obviously, the whether you're parents or whether you've kind of done a little bit of reading, it's kind of the word coddle is obviously that overprotective approach to parenting. So we've kind of taken that word and turned it on its head, C-O-D-L, kind of like the hoddle. And we see it as kind of that overprotective approach to self-custody because there is nothing more important than looking after your Bitcoin and taking custody of your Bitcoin in a secure manner. And so we realized that there was kind of, there's a few little companies that are doing some similar type services, but we felt as if we were able to kind of add value there. And so we wanted to be able to offer kind of a white glove service. I think it's at the moment, it's 169 US dollars and we help you through your uh, custody service. So if you want to do a single SIG or you want to do a multi-SIG, we can guide you through that process and assist you with that. We have kind of measures in place in order to like minimize any risk. We don't see your seed phrase. We don't see anything like that. And we just kind of support you through your process so that you don't have to have any fear about making a mistake or writing down your seed phrase wrong. And we kind of go through a few measures that minimize any risks of, again, losing your seed phrase or whatnot. And then yeah. there's a secondary approach to that, which is you asked me the question earlier, which was how... How do you see kind of Bitcoin adoption taking place? Where do you see the kind of most promising areas of Bitcoin adoption taking place? Mm. And I see one of the biggest hurdles right now is that most people do not have the capacity to store, whether it's a metal seed plate in their home or the ability to sell pure self-custody, whether it's a single SIG or a multi-SIG and have multiple uh, hardware devices scattered around the place. Most people do not have that capacity. I wish that was the case but it is not. If you live in apartment blocks, you live in developed countries, you live with housemates uh, and you don't have that, that security, it's risky to have a single signature device and to just have one uh, seed phrase hidden somewhere. If someone comes across it, then all your Bitcoin's gone. And so the way Daz and I realized that there was something missing, and so we decided to explore and we stumbled across the BTC advisor. And so the BTC advisor yeah. with Peter Dunworth, those guys do collaborative custody. And the way that works is that you would hold one key. Uh, there would be a vault entity such as say Unchained or Nunchuck would hold a second key. And then the BTC advisor would hold a final key. Now, what's interesting in this situation is if you lose your key in a two of three multi-signature setup, whereby obviously there's three keys and you hold one key, if you lose your key, then you can authorize the BTC advisor to connect with Unchained and issue a new key and set up a new wallet. Now, that is phenomenal. You've now removed the potential of key loss. What is also interesting is that given that BTC Advisor and Unchained are two separate legal entities, they have a fiduciary legal duty to act on behalf of their customer. If they were to collude, they would lose their whole reputation. They would lose every single one of their customers. And so there is no incentive for these individuals to collude. So the way I view it is that you've got a higher probability of key loss than you do for collusion between two uh, like jurisdictionally mm. separated legal entities. And I think key loss is a genuine risk. I know individuals that have lost their keys. And so I see this as the future for being able to onboard the next 20, 30, 40% is a more effective way to manage your keys. And it also means that if you as an individual 
If you have one key and let's say someone tries to wrench attack, they come and put a gun to your head, you cannot transfer your Bitcoin without the signing of another key. So ultimately your Bitcoin is somewhat protected in that means, but it also means that if someone comes across your seed phrase, they can't do anything. They can't do anything with your one key that you have. And if yeah. it is compromised, then you can just go back to BTC Advisor or Unchained and then spin up a new uh, key with the, and get rid of the old uh, compromised one. And so the way we see it is we have those two avenues with Coddle. One, we white glove service. We help people down that path of setting up their own single SIG or multi-SIG wallet. And we're more than happy to help out those individuals. But we recognize that that's not for everyone. If you are an individual that maybe is not super technically proficient or you're not interested in managing multiple keys in your own multi-sig setup, then we also have the collaborative custody approach where we've partnered with uh, BTC Advisor and we support them through that process. And so if you have any questions at all on custody, feel free to reach out to myself or Daz and we can help you whether it's through your own personal setup or a collaborative setup with uh, BTC Advisor, uh, yourself and another vault entity. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, the, this goes back to a question earlier. We were talking about like the, the the Puritans would go, you know, not your keys, not your cheese. So don't um, ever give a uh, even a single key to a third party, whether it's Unchained, mm -hmm. whether it's BC Advisor, whatever the case may be. But I think we live in the real world. And a lot of people are just not interested in taking responsibility. It just is what it is. Oh, totally. Um, and uh, and and also they're not as if it's not as if the the um, it's not as if they're Bitcoin uh, maximalists who are allocating 100% of their liquid assets to Bitcoin. So if you've only made a small allocation, it really does make sense to just say work with people who are all in on this in the sense of mm -hmm. this is what they live, you know, eat and sleep basically, and. Um, yeah, I mean, the people that are allocating 100% of their portfolio to Bitcoin, they're probably not going to be people who need your help. But the people well, who it, just want some though. exposure. It's interesting, which is one of the things that collaborative custody does, that multi-sig and single-sig uh, setups kind of add a lot of confusion to is the estate planning. Like, I know even with my partner, it's hard to be able to, like, I've finally got her to get a um, hardware device. And she now has her own kind of self-custody. Yeah. But when I speak to say Daz, Daz's wife has never read beers for Bitcoin. She will never read anything Daz puts out. And so Daz is just like, oh, in the event she. that I, <laughs> in the event that something would have happened to Daz, what's going to happen to his funds? You know what I mean? Like can his, can his wife, can he trust his wife to actually access those funds or his funds lost forever? And so the way that we see this is, the incredible thing about collaborative custody is that in the event that something were to happen, when you set up your collaborative custody, it is a KYC system. And it's a KYC system because you ultimately give permission to these individuals that in the event of death, then once you have, uh, whether it's a notary sign off, lawyer sign off and give the required paperwork, then they are able to assist the next in line to access those funds. That person doesn't have to worry about seed phrases. They don't have to worry about any of the hassle of trying to like locate your secret little hidden treasure that you've dug in a freaking safe underneath the house. So that's the kind of the way we see it is that we see the, the probability of loss of keys greater than the probability of collusion in collaborative custody. And then we also get the benefit of ease of estate planning. And so for high net worth individuals, for average individuals, whoever you are, Estate planning is huge and Bitcoin hasn't got an efficient way to solve that through traditional methods of just single, single, multi-sig setups yet. Yeah. And most people who are estate planners um, are not necessarily equipped to understand the space. That's the mm -hmm. other thing, right? They'll be like, okay, so there's this Bitcoin. Like, what do we actually do with it? How do we get it? Um, 
Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that if you are in that, if, if, if for example, whether me or dads or whoever were to just suddenly get hit by a bus, I'm never going to get hit by a bus. But let me, let's just imagine. I mean, I'll probably die of a million other things before then. Um, but if we were to just die on the spot, the last thing you want to be worrying about, I mean, uh, you know, as, as the sort of surviving spouse is like, should now I have to deal with this issue? Like, it's nice to know that I can speak to Jim or Pete or whoever and just get this sorted. This aspect is taken care of. Mm-hmm. I know that in my with my wife, like, there's some things that it's just, um, it's it's just don't care. Um, you take care of this business, and so in the event of me dying, it would be quite stressful because I think, um, yeah, you 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 know, I've given all the instructions in the world. Um, I've put notes here and there. It's just, it's just, um. I do know that when you're faced with grief, the yeah, the last thing you're going to want to be doing is trying to work out how the hell to access cryptic notes and you know, mm-hmm. like a treasure map. So there certainly is value, and it's something that I've spoken about with Pete Dunworth and loads of other people. It's just like it's not for everyone, but if we're looking to onboard a lot more people uh, and and to do so safely uh, and still in alignment with the ethos of Bitcoin in terms of actual self custody. I, there's there's a huge place for it. Whatever your views might be as a as an individual, you might personally mm-hmm. as a Bitcoiner go, yeah, I can do my own setup. Thanks very much. But I think for ninety nine percent of people who are coming, you know, down the track, it's just not going to fly. Um, they're going to well, want and, something. And then it's, it's one of those things that honestly, for me, I just assisted. This was six months ago, maybe eight months ago. I'd assisted my mum to finally invest a small portion of her pension into bitcoin and so i managed to get her to go and buy a ledger and go and put the money on the ledger and then all of a sudden this whole ledger thing blew up and then i'm just like oh my god and now i don't trust this ledger so now you gotta like transfer her over to another device and whatnot and it's just such a headache and so this is one of the other benefits and this actually isn't just collaborative custody it's multi-sig as well but the moment you have a multi-sig or a collaborative custody multi-sig all of a sudden you have an indifference to the hardware device because even if, say, you did use a ledger, if ledger do have the ability to pull the private key, well, guess what? It's only one of three. They can't do anything with it. And so this is where you have a much more secure system where you're not relying on technology. You're not relying on individuals. You're not relying on lo- um, on basically any of the traditional measures that you have in a single SIG setup, which is why I think that if we want to onboard the next kind of round of Bitcoiners, we need easier solutions. And for me, I see collaborative custody as that that easier solution, at least for the for the meantime. Yeah, no, hundred percent, man. Um, awesome, Seb. Um, I appreciate your time, man. Um, I think uh, what are we what are we on now? We're on. Uh, yeah, I think we've done. Yeah, we've done quite an hour hour twenty. So, um, are you just this will be the longest episode. It's been really good. Um, it's been really good meeting you uh, in the flesh. Well, not quite literally in the flesh, but um, <laughs> close enough. Yeah, close enough. Hey, and um, yeah, it's been really good uh, catching up and a uh, big fan of what you're doing and love the passion and um, your overall balanced approach. You know, um, I-, I like to talk to crazies. I like to talk to balanced people. I love them all because Bitcoiners, uh, they make my heart sore. <laughs> Ah, it's, it's honestly, it's such an honor to be on here. I really, really value the work you're doing. And for me, the Bitcoin community never ceases to amaze me. Like I've never been able to ever in my life walk into a room and be able to build like bonds and friendships like I do in the Bitcoin community 
it's incredible. You, you you meet people that are on so many levels, so aligned. And even if you're not aligned, they're open to having conversations. And mm. I mentioned this on a couple other pods, but like Daz, I've never met Daz in person. We've known each other now for coming on two and a half years. And I would classify him as one of my best friends and my like top two, three friends. We've never met in person. And I, Bitcoin ultimately is what kind of brought us together. So it's it's an incredible community. Do you know? Do you know that um, there's like a, a video or GIF or something where you got these two little toddlers, like a little black kid and a white kid, like running towards each other? <laughs> I think one day when you and Daz meet, it could be like the two of you will be running across the room <laughs> and you'll embrace. And who's going to pick who up? He's quite a big boy, so maybe he'll, he'll I'll pick him you. up. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, Seb, it's been a pleasure, man. And um, I'll I'll put a link to all your work in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Dale. I really appreciate it. All right. Cheers, man. Have a good one. See ya. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you got some value out of it. Either way, hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think. My handle is Dale21M. If you've got any suggestions as to people you think I should be talking to or topics I should address to, I would love that sort of feedback. Otherwise, if you want to support the show, there's a couple different ways you can do that. The first is just to share it amongst your friends and family. The more that people hear the message that Bitcoin and crypto are not the same thing, the better. And I want to help people understand that. The second thing you can do is give me a five-star review on whichever podcast app you're using. Of course, that's only if I deserve it. And last but not least, if you want to stream Satsmoe via the Fountain app, I'm not going to say no, but it's not expected. Thank you so much for your support thus far. It means the world to me. I appreciate the hell out of you and the best is yet to come. Much love, friends. I'll see you on the other side.